and ultimately that's what I had to tell them. I said, look, I really like her, but we just don't do that. It's not what Jive does. Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez on The Original Doll Iconography. I unpackage music with the people who create it, with the people who were in the room. And at the same time, we give back to charity. For more information, join me on Instagram, the.original.doll. Big shout out to my Patreon community. Because of you all, the show keeps going. To join that, go to theoriginaldoll.com. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster you know and uh, i mean i don't mean to be dark about this but when i'm dead and buried i don't want the stories to uh to disappear with me too so i think it's good mm-hmm. to go in as much detail as i can you know muster up from the past and thanks to you when you make me go through all my notes that are, <laughs> that are still unorganized in the basement um <laughs> i think it's it's good because it's good to get the information out and you're the only person i'm really telling this to so in well certainly in this sort of detail Welcome back to the original doll. For those first time listeners, thank you so much for joining us and those returners, you all rock. Today we have returning guest Steve Lunt. Many of you know Steve Lunt because he was there for the developing, the signing, and the creation of Britney Spears' first four studio albums, Baby, Oops, Britney, and In the Zone. But he himself was also in a band, City Boy, and he worked with Mutt Lang. Many of you make it go Mutt Lang, I know him from the 80s songs, or I know him from Britney Spears' Don't Let Me Be Last No, or his extensive work with his ex-wife Shania Twain. Steve today is going to be talking about a story that I think needs some light on it, and it's honoring Taylor Swift. Oftentimes we see in media, they say, oh, Taylor Swift, who she's dating, who she's not dating. They talk about this and that. This happens a lot with women in music, in media. We talked about this extensively with Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, and so many others. I wanted to point this out because this was a meeting that Steve took, which would have Taylor Swift in the Jive Records office. Okay, Steve was still working with Britney Spears at the time. A 12-year-old Taylor Swift comes in and basically auditions for him. You're going to find out so many great things about who she is and who she saw herself as then. And the original Dow James Rodriguez, the iconography is always about honoring the legacies of these greats. Now, Steve himself has worked with so many amazing women. We've talked about this before. He, you know, being a co-writer on Cyndi Lauper's Shebop or Goonies Are Good Enough or working with Brenda K. Starr or having Mariah Carey be his demo singer. We go through all of this and really honor all of these greats. Steve was kind enough to spend more time with me talking about his meeting with Taylor Swift. If you're a Swifty, you're going to enjoy this. If you're not a Swifty, you just might be. Taylor Swift has had a career for decades at this point. The continual discussion is always who she's dating, why she's dating them, what's going on. It just happens. It happens with women in music and media. So today I wanted to show you and give you all a little bit of who Taylor Swift was at the age of 12. And you're going to enjoy this. 
because Steve has been able to go back through his notes, his emails, faxes. He's been able to check through all of this information so that we honor everyone and honor them correctly. The point of today's episode is I want you to leave with two things. That the Taylor Swift we know now was still the Taylor Swift at the age of 12. And that sometimes, no matter the talent, a label might not have the resources to launch a specific artist. We're going to get right to the show. Enjoy. Everyone, I would like to welcome you back to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez, where we unpackage music with the people who were in the room. And at the same time, we help out charity. So I want to give a special shout out to our returning guest, one of my favorite people in the entire world, icon himself, Steve Lunt. Steve, thank you for being here again today. I'm back. Yes. (laughs) It is I. One who will not go away. (laughs) The thing is, you have so many of these great stories, and we've been going through all this Britney Spears discography, iconography, and there are so many stories that you've, when we talked about a Britney thing, you're like, oh, and that was around this time. And there's another story with another artist because... Of course, working as Britney's A&R guy, there was always a lot of work to do, but it wasn't just, she wasn't your only responsibility. She wasn't the only meetings you were taking. So right. I wanted you to talk about a meeting with a then unknown girl from Pennsylvania named Taylor Swift. So let's rewind Certainly. back. That's my rewinds, <laughs> rewind sound. Um so you can use your sound effect for that because you have it. It'll be far less embarrassing than me emulating it. Um, so, yeah, it was, I believe, and I went through some notes today, and I believe it was around about 2003. She was 12 years old, and um, and she just started working with Dan Dimtro. Dan Dimtro was the, he worked uh, as a an underling under Larry Rudolph, um, Britney's, uh, manager at the time and uh and so dan this was his first discovery if you like taylor's you know mother had uh had made contact or somehow i'm not quite sure how but they made contact with dan and so dan said i like this i'm you know let me see what i can do and so we had a meeting and they came to my office and i believe it's i think it was both her mother and father and taylor but i can't be a hundred percent certain that her mother was there, but I think she was. And Taylor, as I said, she came in as this 12-year-old girl with with if you go back through the old pictures of her, you can see her with her curly long hair mm-hmm. and like all you know, wavy and everything, you know. But but she was 12, you know, and uh and she comes in with her guitar. There was no demo, uh, no no recorded demo. I never heard any of any of that. And um and so, you know, we spoke for a while and everything. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, you got your guitar. Are you going to play something? So she said, yeah. And she played me a couple of songs. And one song in particular had a really nice chorus to it. You could tell that she was a songwriter. You could tell. Yeah. I mean, this is all all her. You could tell she was creative. And as soon as, like, the song had finished and I asked Taylor a question about it, I think it was her father chimed in with his comment. And she shot him a look. She turned around. He was sitting in the back of the office. She turned around and shot him a look, you know, like the devil, um, you know, like shut up type of thing, you know, that mm-hmm. only a 12 year old can get away with, um, with, with your parents. And, uh, and it was like, you know, she was giving him that, that look like I've got this dad, you don't have to speak for me, mm-hmm. you know, which now we see Taylor the way she is now. It's 
perfectly in, in character. I mean, you know, there's no one's going to talk for Taylor. Uh, so looking back on that, that was really quite, uh, you know, quite important. But she played the song and, you know, I, I really liked her a lot. I thought, but you've got to remember where Jive Record was at the time. Jive Records was a label where at the time in 2003, we had pop artists, we had R&B artists, uh, we had rock artists on, on our Silvertone sub-label. Um, and we didn't have any kind of folky type mm -hmm. of... You can remember she wasn't country at this point. And Jive also didn't have a country label either. So it was... Uh, we had a lot of contacts in Nashville, but it was mainly Christian music and things like that because those are the labels that, that, that Zomba owned in Nashville. But it wasn't really country per se. So we didn't have that. We didn't have any singer-songwriters on the label. And we didn't have any big ballad singers either. That's the other female. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have any of the celine dion type of big ballad singers either it was always clive's viewpoint that both of those areas the singer songwriter and the the big ballad singer that they were kind of for an independent label like ours which was very mainstream independent label it was it was thin ice a lot of money had to be spent normally to get them in the public's eye mm -hmm. um and you had to be really competitive it was a very competitive field where it's difficult to find your own path like in the way of the big ballad singer, you either had to be as good as Whitney Houston and uh, and Celine Dion, or don't bother entering the field. Mm -hmm. It's no good coming in knowing that you're going to be in third place from the beginning, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so we always steered shy of that because we never found a big ballad singer who could compete at that level. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line for that. With the with the folk type of singer that that Taylor was at the time, with a twelve year old's voice too. You got to remember this. It's a twelve year old voice singing a kind of unformed folk type of thing strumming on the guitar it was kind of a, a nothing area for jive you know like we just didn't do that and uh and ultimately that's what i had to tell them i said look i really like her but we just don't do that it's not what jive does and for me to go into an a&r meeting presenting this as mm -hmm. as my next find would have um met with some you know with some giggles and some like uh, shocked expressions you know, because because it isn't what we do, and Clive had made it known that's not what we do. In retrospect, of course, I mean, it's you know we can always look through. Oh yeah, know. but I'm just giving you the perspective of of the way the the record company was at that point, and where she was at that point. The next thing um, was Dan uh, got her a uh, a this modeling thing with uh, with. Abercrombie and Fish, mm -hmm. and you could see where she, where she was going with this thing. Then he got a, a development deal with RCA Records in Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I'll stop there and let you ask me another question because I know, even though she wasn't personally in in my sphere at that point, I know the people who were. So I'm sort of I'm sort of aware of of, of how the story develops. But go ahead and ask any more questions. <laughs> Hopping out for a quick second. So this was what was amazing. Steve was able to go back through his notes, journals, and everything. And so we know that this initial meeting did, in fact, happen in 2003. And it's truly, to me, I was listening to it going, this is amazing, that we know who Taylor Swift is now. And yet imagine a 12-year-old girl and in a, ultimately, let's say a business meeting, you know, a 12-year-old, anyone, child would just, you know, you wouldn't know how they would react. 
But when Steve was asking Taylor Swift about whether it was her artistry or what she wanted to do, where she saw herself, when her dad was going to speak up, Taylor said, "Mm -mm, I got this. And to me, that right there showed that there was that the woman who knew who she was. And what I've loved is in all these discussions and interviews and chats with Steve Lunt, he says, whether you're 17 or 70, when he's talking to an artist, he listens to the artist. When Britney Spears was, you know, they're trying to figure out before she recorded Baby One More Time, Steve played her the video for Robin's song, Show Me Love, and said, you know, what do you think about this? And Britney's like, I don't know. It's I don't think I would do that because it's in black and white and there are no dancing. So early on, Britney Spears knew the visuals were going to be a part of what she wanted to do and bring to her artistry. And she did that. Now, don't forget, we have more coming up right now, but don't forget to rate this episode. As many of you know, I'm independent here. So all of the the rating, all the follows truly helps and keeps us going. And if you're a fan of any of these artists, check through the other episodes and listen to how songs were created, how groups were created the career and development of Britney Spears. You can find it at the original Dow James Rodriguez iconography. Now we're going to get back to the show. Big shout out again to my Patreon patrons. And this is something that I don't want people to overlook is that here you are, you who just, let's say six years before that meeting with Taylor Swift, you're trying to get Britney Spears into that full, you know, full development, the full record label, not just the 90 day get out of, you know, get out of jail free kind of clause that here you are, you were able to do that and creating something different. And even Britney herself for Jive at the time was different, but the music around was percolating that it was going to go in that yeah. direction. So what I want people to remember is this is not the meeting went and she had no talent. And then you sent her off. This is saying there's resources that are not going to behoove you. If you came here, this is not, we would right. be ill educated in that sense do you know what i mean and i think uh yeah. that's something that happened so then, then and it's not like other labels were jumping at her either mm-hmm. were saying we got to have you you know and she wanted, only wanted to be on jive she did actually want to be on jive you know she i think she had seen what we did and i i believe that she liked me she's mentioned me since then so she mm-hmm. obviously remembers the meeting but i think because i treated her with respect you know as a 12 year old because she was an artist you know i don't care if you're six if you're an artist you know, you have something to say, and if you have something to say, which she did, you're, um, you know, I'm always receptive to that. You just have to treat a 12-year-old differently than you treat a 20-year-old, just the, the nature of the beast. So then here she gets a development deal, which we've talked about different development deals. She's going to RCA. Now, many people may say, wait, but RCA is not who she released her albums or anything through. From your end, what did you see as the, you know, a point guy for Jive Records that clearly, you know, she has talent. You find out she gets sent there. And then now what happens? What happens? Because yeah. she didn't release her first album within that, that no. year. No, she she went down to, to Nashville. Um, she basically moved down there. And um, I believe her father, I think she moved down there with her mother. Then the father came a year later, I believe. I'm not quite sure about that. But I know that, that Dan took her down there because she really wanted to get involved in country. Yeah. Country's a, a closed shop, you know, and you go into there, you know, especially if you're not from the South, you're from Pennsylvania, you know, and you're going down there and you're this little uh, skinny, skinny girl with not a real country voice at all, as voices are at that age. They're not fully developed yet. 
but there was obviously something in her writing and she and dan got her a, a, a publishing deal with sony atv like a publishing company down there because they saw something which obviously i'm sure they didn't spend a lot of money on on signing it to this thing but they had a publishing and they got her a development deal with rca nashville which was affiliated with i believe with sony atv somehow the publishing house and um and what happened was they put it together with a lot of a lot of um like top names writing wise in nashville you know nashville for people who don't know is a very right songwriter heavy community Mm -hmm. Everybody's a songwriter, but it's very strict. It's not like in New York where you hang out and you write and you get pizza and a couple of beers and things. In Nashville, it's like, okay, I've got a slot for you between 9 and 12. We'll write then. Then I have to go to someone else and have to write between 12 and 3. It's like done in three-hour sessions, you know, mainly. So, um, it, and it can be very busy and it's very productive. There's so many creative people down there. I mean, I loved it, my time in uh, working with Nashville people. But they put it together with all of these songwriters and they came up with songs and they wrote and they did and they recorded the demos. And it was just kind of, you know, by numbers, which the bad thing about Nashville is that things sometimes tend to mm-hmm. go by numbers. You know, they say, oh, it's a it's a blonde female country singer. OK, this is the type of song we'll write. Mm-hmm. They're not always geared towards that specific artist they kind of cookie cutter in the in mm-hmm. their approach a lot, of, a lot of the time not always but a lot of the time um and what happened was that she uh, in the end you know it didn't work out with rca um and i mean i heard that she was dropped you know by rca i don't know if that or if it was mutual it's always mm-hmm. difficult to know the truth in these things but but anyhow it didn't work out so then um, she had this uh, chance meeting with, uh, and I can't for the life of me remember his name. He was just starting up. He was a, he used to be a, a promotion, radio promotion guy, and was just starting up his own label, Big Machine. Scott Borchetta. There you go, Scott Borchetta. And um, and um, and and he said, like, you know, I hear something here. This is, and he had a very, the label was only just starting, you know, but he was, he wasn't really a musical guy. He was like a promotional guy. That means you're mm-hmm. like you're full, like energy usually these guys are full of energy and full of usually full of bullshit you know but he (laughs) he wasn't he was like you know she took to him immediately and i think um taylor's father then invested in his in this fledgling company taylor's father was was quite well off Mm -hmm. um so invested in it and um again he put it with uh with a writer liz rose who's an extremely good writer and and is the type of writer who can can write with with an artist, you know, mm-hmm. a specific artist, as opposed to just being generic. And with her being a woman too, I think it, I think Taylor felt like so at home. And with Liz, you know, obviously wanting to relive her, her youthful years through this young girl, it was a really good um, mixture of what they wanted to do. Um, and what happened was that they had these these tracks, these and a bunch of tracks that they finished, and they played them for Scott. Bochetta, the head of the label. And he said, okay, well, okay, these songs are great. This is going to be great when we put you with blah, A, B, C, D, almost mm-hmm. the same people before, you know, like the cookie cutter producers, you mm-hmm. know, when we can make this into a, and, um, and Taylor, you know, God bless her said, uh, said, Scott, you know, I've kind of been down that road on the last thing. She said, can you trust me on this? 
And we, she, she was the demos that she did for these songs. By the way, were done with um, Nathan Chapman. Taylor had said, Taylor said, "Look, I've kind of been down that route before. You know, working with all the predictable names here. Um, the, the demos that she had done of these songs were produced by this guy called Nathan Chapman in his own." studio and his house and nathan is a songwriter on his own in his own regard but he didn't write any of these songs there were but he used to work a lot with with liz rose liz rose used to go to him to do demos and that's what and then so liz took taylor to nathan's house to do these demos and they did these demos and nathan plays you know multiple he plays multiple instruments and he can record demos like an engineer and everything you know um they recorded these things, and that's what Scott Boschetta was was reacting so positively mm-hmm. towards. And and Taylor said, "Look, please, you know, trust me on this. Just give me a shot. Give me a few thousand dollars. Let's go back to Nathan with these demos that we've got. Let's polish them up and get them, you know, like final record sounding. You know, we'll mm-hmm. get an additional musicians. We'll do whatever we've got to do because this is the area. This is what I want to be doing." What I'm doing with him, that the heart and soul of what we're doing with Nathan is what I want. And I, I believe in Nathan. So Scott said, okay, wrote out a check to do some uh, to do some additional recording, went to Nathan's house. And I remember Nathan calling me up and, and saying, well, what, what do I do? What did you, have you got the numbers of any more musicians? I'm saying, you're the one who lives down there. <laughs> so, so he, um, he at last sort of put all these things together. You know, he'd never been the one totally in control he'd always sort of kind of been the demo guy you know mm-hmm. you pay him a couple hundred dollars and you get your demo as opposed to okay now we're going into the studio making a record for real um and he's the nicest guy it's so easy mm-hmm. to work with him and his wife are so nice um and she's a te- very talented singer in her own right so um so uh, scott said okay let's do this and so they did and they went and did it and and they bought these the finished things back to scott and he said this is it and, they, and one of those songs was Tim McGraw, her first single. Um, and and they literally, you know, they had to work that song for about a year at radio before radio mm-hmm. finally buckled. And here's where I come in with the research information. We just talked about it. it took a bit for radio to pick up on the song. Here's what's interesting. The song would peak at number six on the Hot Country Songs charts. January 27th, 2007. Okay, so after the beginning of the year, January 27th, 2007. But it started being played on radio May 31st, 2006. So it took six, seven months for the song to peak on the hot country song charts. That's how long it took. Okay, and there are only two cities that played it on its US radio debut date. Orlando, Florida, Chattanooga, Tennessee. But then I looked to see, okay, which market in the United States has given it the most love to date as of 2023? The radio station market that gives it the most love and the most plays? Roanoke, Virginia. Now back to the show. They had to work that song for about a year at radio before radio mm-hmm. finally buckled. You know, it's the same way that we jive had to work had to work the Backstreet Boys for a long time, um, mm. you know, with MTV and, and radio to get them to accept that pure pop thing in the middle of a grunge explosion, you know, to, to get them to accept this pure pop thing. And it took a while before before um, we could get the Backstreet Boys off the ground like that. 
And the same thing happened with 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 Taylor. She was forging new new uh, territory down there in a very closed musical um, environment. Uh, and her voice didn't sound like a like a trad- traditional country singer. Mm-mm. She sounded more like a pop singer singing country lyrics mm-hmm. over this over this really nice of uh, semi country crack. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it took a while, but once started getting airplay then once people saw taylor and everything mm-hmm. phones started lighting up which for people who don't know when you're at a radio station the amount of phone calls you get about songs really dictates to a large degree what you're going to be playing you know um it feeds into itself that way so they see that it's connecting with the public and taylor connected with the public and it tim mcgraw ended up being a big hit and when she released her album that was a big hit too so mm-hmm. the thing about this is that it was all down to taylor saying I know what I want. Please mm-hmm. give me the chance to do it. And she had that total belief, you know, having gone down the wrong road before, she had a total belief in her own gut instinct to speak to her own audience in the same way that Brittany did, to speak to her own uh, peers, her, her own age. And so she knew there were a lot of country girls out there who wanted to hear someone like, you know, some th- these country girls because they're born, you know, in, in the country world, it doesn't mean to say all they want to hear is is older country singers doing things. Mm-hmm. They grew up in the age of Britney and Backstreet Boys, and they like that too. So to have a country girl representing their age group in the country field was huge. And you can see that with all the Swifties now. They're still, even though now <laughs> they're like 30s or whatever, you know, it's they're still that's the that's the crowd. She was speaking to her peers in the same way that Britney did to hers. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so crazy to think that this, so many people wanted to say, oh, the Taylor thing, it's, you know, or even Britney for that matter, oh, overnight success, overnight, and it, it's never, it's never that case at all. Like, uh-huh. you could be both of them working deals, both of them had interviews with top labels, and it just didn't work out here or there for whatever reason, both of them were able to create a lane and create this iconography that makes people that loved those songs now be able to go back nostalgic and be like oh my god that's Mm -hmm. that's part of my childhood this is my Mm -hmm. first breakup and everything and i think what i've loved is both of those artists on their own have always talked about being you know fans of other artists taylor swift and britney spears were never those artists that would be like, oh, I don't listen to any other music. I don't acknowledge right. anyone else. Oh, they love like, other artists. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, that's also the, I don't want to say small town girl, because that's not what I'm trying to say, but that quote unquote all American girl where she's she's a friend to so many people. She know you know, she's hanging out with everyone. And when she says she loves Mandy Moore Candy, you know, she loves Mandy Moore Candy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then when she mm-hmm. wants to listen to Snoop Dogg, she'll listen to Snoop Dogg. But right. I think- these stories are important because I didn't know about the Taylor Swift jive thing until you and I had started talking. And I was like, in my mind, of course, if anybody wanted that label that knows how to make a superstar, a female superstar, mm-hmm. right? because Britney really led a, a new wave of these other female artists coming out. She and did. I think Taylor has always been somebody who's, talked about her admiration for Britney Spears and just what she does and and strong women in general and those that were also born on the MTV TV 
you know, yeah. visuals are a thing. Like with Taylor Swift, there's always a story. There's always reasons behind it. When you talk about Britney Spears <laughs> in this song, if I do a video, I want it to be this way, that where it's an all encompassing thing. And Taylor yeah. Swift was able to genuinely go from a teen star to a 20 something to a 30 something to a beyond well-respected artist. People know what she can do and she doesn't have to rely on a hundred different people to come up with an idea for her. And I think this is right. the, this is the coolest yeah, exactly. part. Everyone have no fear. We have more with Steve Lunt and don't forget to add me on Instagram, the.original.doll and rate this and let me know, hit me up in my DMs. What is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Who knows in the future, I may be covering it. Steve, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, James, as always.